0: to uh, come and get a chance to share with you a little bit today. Uh, The importance of the word is our first session. And uh, interestingly enough, I'm glad for being able to to speak on this because really we're seeing such hostility towards God's word. And we've always seen it from the outside of the church. We expect that. Where, Where it's happening now is the hostility that seems to be growing by the day within the church. And so uh, the the view that people are taking of the scripture is is different than even when I first got saved, about 30 years ago. The church that I landed in was one that was very careful about teaching doctrine, very careful about what it was that we believed, and very careful about going all the way through the scripture. So my pastor went to be with the Lord about five years ago, and uh, I had 25 years to observe what uh, what he did and and where he has come from and he passed those things along to me and so uh, getting a chance to share with you I I don't suppose I will be sharing anything that's like profound in the way that you've never heard that before because ultimately the scripture itself is something that we come to without trying to to uh, find something that no one's ever found before the Scripture's written for for the every person and so, uh, if we try to take some clinical scholarly view of it when it is written for the everyday, I think we make the mistake. And sometimes we've heard people that are incredible scholars, but when they, they speak about the Word of God, they speak about it in those terms. And it's kind of hard to track because it becomes just so clinical. And so, what I was introduced to is the Word that's alive and it's powerful and it's in, indeed personal. And so we can come to it. Every person can have a Bible in their hands and have everything necessary to know who God is as he's demonstrated himself through it. So I want to set some baseline things with you. If I could, we'll go through a a few verses. And uh, man, I never thought this day would come either where I have to start wearing glasses to read. I I had it all worked out with God that uh, a year after I was saved that he was going to come back for the church. And apparently he didn't get the memo, so I don't know about any of you, but uh, I always ask this question, you know, the, uh, how many of you, when you first got born again, you thought now that that's out of the way, Lord, you can come back anytime and it's, it's good. You just come back and now that I'm saved, we can get the show on the road. And so when I always say that, I, I say, well, how many of you got saved after like 1985? How many of you like since 86 on got saved after that time? Well, so, again, the question, aren't you glad I didn't get my way? Yeah? <laughs> kind of that's how that works. Well, the, uh, the idea of God's Word and, and the approach that we take with it, our first text, and I'm going to throw out a whole bunch of them, and, and uh, we'll, we'll take just a little bit of time with them to make some observations of it, and then uh, we're, this is going to go very, very, this whole hour will go quick, well, probably for me, I don't know about for you. So we'll uh, we'll see. But we're going to start at Acts 26 this morning, and let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for gathering us here, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it lays out for us, and what we have in front of us is that which you intended for us to know. You've given us everything that is necessary for us to come into a relationship with you, and You've given us everything that we must have in order to reveal who you are and what you expect of us and what, what is necessary for us to see you when you return. So we pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that are open, willing to receive. We thank you and we give you all praise and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Acts 26, this is the, the place where Paul is making his defense at Caesarea, And so as he's saying these things, he he says this really interesting little phrase. And really only two other places will you see this word used. And uh, if you're reading King James, what I'm going to say is uh, in New King James, the word is reasonable. In King James, it would be uh, sober-minded. But look at what what Paul says when he's he's addressing, um, well, just verse 24. Let's just read it. Verse 24 tells us now, Acts twenty six twenty four. Now, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, are you beside yourself? Are you out of your mind? Right. Much learning is driving you mad. So he's thinking because of the way that Paul is saying this, that because of the attempt to know so much, he's, he makes it sound like there's so much to be known and knowledgeable here that it's seen in, in Festus's eyes of being you're out of your mind but then paul said this i am not mad most noble festus but i speak the words of truth and of reason so what i want to begin by saying is that what we believe by looking at the word of god is a reasonable it's a reasonable thing that god has given to us it is truth based upon reason so what we have in our faith is not only reasoned faith but it reasonable as well so as we go through these texts and as we look at these passages Every one of us can be equipped to engage a world that's hostile towards what we believe. The knowledge that can be gained from the scripture gives us the ability to do that. Now, the personality is what sometimes becomes the problem. How is it that we can tell people what it is that we believe in a way that's engaging to the person and not off-putting or not argumentative or all the rest of that? Now, I know in my early years I was convinced of what God's word says, but I wasn't necessarily tactful about how I would talk about such things now there's a difference in the way that we deal with it within the church versus how we deal with it with the unsaved our message is going to be different to both groups needless to say the world needs to be born again the world needs salvation the church should already be in that place and that'll go along with what i'm talking about the second session that i have and that's what we believe doctrinally it's what we believe is truth but what I'm going to give is a, a series of passages here. We're going to look at them quickly. It's kind of just to set a baseline. So the first of those things, what we believe is reasoned. It, it is for the sober of mind. Now, again, the world looks at us and thinks everything but that, because a lot of times what they see is what is represented on television, right? They, and again, people may even be rightness in, have a rightness of place in their cause, but the way that the world is going to portray that is always going to be different than what it should be. Right? We just watched the thing in Kentucky, right? The lady that wouldn't sign the... Did they not make her look like she was completely out of her mind? Now, see, I don't know her personally. I don't know a lot really necessarily about her doctrinally. But you can do anything by taking video and and doing with it what you will and, and excerpting what you want. You can make the most sane person look out of their minds. But, see, we've got to know that the world wants to view us that way. We have to be ready for such things. So let me just throw out some of these other ones. Everything is, uh, in Scripture is, of course, God-breathed, so take a look at 2 Timothy with me. We'll do this very briefly. Again, we'll look through these. Again, they're going to be kind of quick. Second Timothy chapter 3, it is, of course, a very common passage. We probably are all pretty familiar with it, but there is one thing about it that I think is important that we take away. As I turn there, I didn't even, you know, put little marks next to it so I could go there faster. 2 Timothy uh, 3.16, we all know that verse, but there is one thing that's kind of subtle, and I'd like to be able to point it out, and it, this just does show the power of the Word. Verse 15 tells us, in 2 Timothy 3, it says to Timothy that from your childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, and these are able to make you wise. Unto salvation or for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, let's remember what was in print by the time that Timothy was a young man. Not much other than the Old Testament and then whatever may have been put out in in oral tradition and all the rest of that. But as he says, Paul, here to Timothy, that from your infancy, from your youth, all that there was definitely then was the Old Testament and there was enough in the Old Testament for a person to come to a a saving knowledge that when Jesus showed up everything in the Old Testament was saying that he would come and that he would have these qualifications and once he met those unique to him then you could start to listen to his message knowing that this is the one that God had ordained this is the one who God had anointed and set up for that message and so we want to make sure that we look at Uh, both Old and New Testament on equal footing. Now, how many of you have ever heard that term? We don't take a lot of time in the Old Testament because we're a New Testament church. Have you ever heard anybody use that? Good. I'm glad that you're not around a church where they'd say such things. But I've heard that said. We don't take a lot of time in the Old Testament because being a New Testament church, we're in a new covenant. And I, I will submit to you that if we don't understand the Old Testament extremely well... Much of the new doesn't make a great deal of sense. Substitutionary atonement, Jesus dying for your sins in a substitutionary way, that is very Old Testament. Take a look at what you see in just the book of Leviticus in the first four verses. When it talks about bringing an offering, that person was to bring that offering in a free will manner. And he was to put his hands on that animal as it was being sacrificed as an acknowledgement of his personal sin. And the, the Bible tells us in that in those first few verses that it will be accepted by God for him and not the person standing next to him, but for him. Well, there you have the whole message of substitutionary atonement in the first four verses of the book of Leviticus. So that when Jesus comes around, that idea, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that was a sin offering being mentioned in Leviticus. So we should know the Old Testament backwards and forwards because it will inform us so much in our understanding of the new. So we see here he goes on then to say all scripture. It is given by God's inspiration or given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction and in righteousness. So this is the idea that though God used earthly men as the instrument by which he wrote Nonetheless, he is the one who authored these things. It is God-breathed and so given to man. And so then it tells us that once God has conveyed thought to us in the written word, then notice the progression of these things. Because again, my second session will be on doctrine. I hear people say often that doctrine is something that divides so we don't spend a lot of time on doctrine. Well, then you're basically wandering around in a room that, de- that has no light. Because you're making it up for yourself, you're not looking at what God has had to say about such things. So look at what Paul says in this order. It is profitable for doctrine, and then for reproof, correction, and instruction. Different, um, uh, I guess you could say they are different words in their intensity, but all meaning the same thing. If you're having to answer, even if it's in a forceful way... Somebody who has a particular view, your doctrine means everything because it is what you teach. It's what is to be believed. And so we hear right here that this is put there, doctrine. All scripture is given so that we will know what it is that we believe that when correction is necessary, the Bible is the authority and not man's opinion. Because ultimately God wants to bring about righteousness. And then 17, that the man of God would be equipped, thoroughly, completely equipped for every good work. So if we're going out into the mission field, whether that's at home, at work, or halfway around the world, we go based upon the doctrine that we find taught through the scripture or else we have nothing to offer, which is an interesting thing when you consider so many things in the mission field are all external. We're taking care of this need or that need. We're you know, building wells or houses or food and all the rest of that, which is all noble but if it is not done also to bring them to a saving knowledge of a savior who loves them, we've dealt with the temporary things of life and we've done nothing about the eternal. So we've got to be very, very careful about these things. Psalm, Psalms or Psalm 119, however you would want to say that. Let's turn there. Psalm 119, which is really a. An entire chapter that is massive in its scope, and it is all a a glorification, if you will, of God's word. So we see in Psalm 119, go to verse 160. And this is an important thing going along with what we see in the New Testament, that it's all God given. It's all God breathed, which should make sure to us that we recognize the importance of God's word. Remember, also in Psalms, we know that David says your word, you you have honored your word even above your own name. But we know from the book of Hebrews that when God could swear by no one greater than himself, he swore by his own name, by by his own person. So it puts the person of God and his word on equal footing. Well, look at what David says in Psalm 119, verse 160. The entirety of your word is truth. Now, isn't it funny that even in the church, we are debating about what is truth. And and we have the Bible right in front of us, but we have people that would attack the word and say for all number of reasons why it is not trustworthy. And I'm going to get to some of those examples here in just a few moments. But when we look at this where, where David says your word, the entirety of it, not just some of it, the entirety of your word is truth and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. The word can be used by us to, tr- to, uh, to prove things. But have you ever encountered a person that wants to argue with you and they will use Scripture to yeah, as their basis for why they disagree with you and why you shouldn't believe the Bible. You ever had that one? Isn't that the most insane thing ever? People who don't care a whit about the Word of God want to try to use it to dismiss what you believe. We want to be able to look at verses like this, and there are so many of them, to say that everything in your word is true. And then, of course, what David had was what was written to that time. God was still going to be writing through the prophets' future to his time. But David is able to say, as it is right here, right now, everything in your word, God, is truth. Now, it's not just some truth, because we've heard that. That the word of God by the critics within the church will tell us that the word or the, the Bible contains God's truth, but not that it is God's truth. And of course, the worst part about that is you say, great. So please tell me where is that arbitrary line and who decides what? Therein is the problem. We if we don't take in for a penny in for a pound kind of a way of looking at the scripture, then really it's left up to whoever is reading it. Sounds like judges, right? Everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. No wonder the church is in such a horrific condition. And it is because the word of God is not authoritative in far too many places. I would say in the overwhelming majority of churches, the Bible is not the standard. It is not what what governs everything that goes on in that church. So David says the entirety of your word is truth and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. So if we believe that God had authored everything up to David's point, then anything that God would have authored thereafter would also have the same weight as being perfect. And this you can look at as an evidence. The Bible, no matter what the critics want to say, never contradicts itself, though they will try to give you example after example. It is a problem with their understanding of it, and it is a good thing for us to become equipped to answer those kinds of questions. And most of the time, you've, maybe some of you have had this. Somebody will say the Bible's full of contradictions. How many of you have had that one? It is hilarious. If you have somebody say that, push back and say, Would you give me one of those? Most of the time, they haven't the slightest idea of where to find one of these alleged contradictions. And so you say, Well, well then where did you hear that? And they'll never admit it, but they read it on a blog somewhere. Or they heard it from somebody and it just gets repeated. So push back on those kind of things. We want to win them, not in an argument. We want to win them to Jesus based upon the word of God that told us that he would come into this creation. And then in the New Testament, we find out that he became flesh and dwelt among us. And we heard him. And because of what he taught and because of what he did, we can have a relationship with him. So we want to get it to the point where we not only are defenders of the word, but then we are also those who proclaim the word. You can't do you need to do both. We can have a lot of head knowledge, but it's got to come out. God's got to be able to use it. We need to make ourselves available after God has poured into us that we pour back out. Knowing his word. Each of us can be students of his word for sure. Here's what Jesus says about it himself. John chapter 17. In the closing moments of Jesus' life free chapter 17 of the book of john gives us details that the other gospels don't and here is where jesus prays for the church and it's a it's a phenomenal phenomenal uh um record that john has given to us and there's another verse that goes along with this and i'm gonna i know i'm throwing a whole bunch of them out to you so i'm gonna try to be very careful about how much i throw out so a couple of them that i wanted to i've left alone i'll just give them to you to write down Um, In John 17, though, we're going to be going to verse uh, 16 earlier in this. Just for those people that ever questioned deity, this is a great deity chapter. Verse five tells us you can either look at it or write it down. Verse five, Jesus says now, basically, he's already said, I've completed the work that you've given to me. Now glorify me with the glory that you and I shared before the world was. Now, if you take a look at what God says of his own nature and who he is in Isaiah chapter 42, Right around verse 8, I believe, is where it is. God said, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will share with none other, or with no other. And then God says, in one of the the passages that really does go along with where we are today, God says, I declare things, the former things, they have come to pass. And for three or four chapters, he's saying to to the idols there, if you're really God's, then you tell me how these things work. Or you, you forecast what's coming. And then God says, I'm the only one who does that. Which is something important for us as we look at the word to recognize. The way that God has communicated to us is unique in all of the religions. There are many that would say that they speak for God and that God has spoken to them. And they are the prophets and all the rest. The Bible is different than all the rest of them. And we'll get into some of those examples. But we see in John 17, verse 16, he says of us, they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Now, sanctify them. Since Jesus says, yeah, I've come into this place, I've come into this existence, left eternity and the glorified state that he had pre-existent before anything was, he is. Became flesh and blood for that short amount of time. And now that he's about to go back to that place, he says... They are not of this world just like I'm not of this world. Now, how many of you just thought that was a bumper sticker? That's where it comes from. Right here. Not of this world. Jesus wasn't, therefore we're not. And if you've ever wondered why people look at you when you start to talk about the Bible and things like that, some people you can see, they're grasping it, even if they're not believers. And there's the other ones that look at you like you're speaking Yiddish. They do the the dog thing where they just kind of cock their head and look at you. I'm not getting through to you Well, you're not speaking my language. That's the idea of not of this world. But look at what he says. Now, since we're not out of this world, he asks us to sanctify. He asks God to sanctify us by your truth. And then he says, your word is truth, which is an absolute statement. Now, there are those that are critics of God's word that would say the Bible does not and cannot be taken as absolute because you can't take absolute statements since you weren't there. It was written two thousand years ago. I heard one person say it about the Philippians, just as whatever random book they wanted to choose. We we've never been to Philippi. We don't know the people in Philippi. We're not two thousand years old. So how can we stand dogmatically on anything that it says? The Bible doesn't speak in absolute truth. There are no absolutes. Have you ever had somebody say that to you? You want to push back and say that sounds like an absolute statement to you to me. Are you are you absolutely sure that there are no absolute truths? Seriously, I think that we should be taking, as the world comes to us, not to be argumentative or combative. I really want to entertain those things. Come to me with your reasons why you object. I want to take the momentum from that and be able to turn it back towards them without arguing, but to say, listen to yourself. Let me give you an alternative. Let me give you another possible way of looking at what you're saying here. Because most of the time, people let them go ahead with their arguments and never ask a question in rebuttal and then send them on their way. God's Word does not ask us to do that. Look at the Apostle Paul. He answered every objection based upon the Word of God. Every single one and all the other writers of the Scripture. And we should do the same at all times. So then we read, Verse 18, as you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by your truth. And here's I've I read on because verse 20, this is really cool. I don't pray for these alone, but I also pray for those who believe who will believe in them through their words or believe in me through their words. That's us. Because we're reading John, right? Was John not one of those? And here we are 2015 reading words that have been there for 2000 years. Now, here's one of the things I always find comical. Again, whenever I hear the objections, I want to work through these things because people will basically say to us when it comes to, again, what I'll do in the second session about doctrine, that you can't be so dogmatic about doctrine and all that stuff. The Bible's been translated, the Bible this and the Bible that, especially when you start to talk about if, if you're, uh, you know, one of the people around Calvary Chapel, there's a debate going in our, uh, around it, it within Calvary Chapel about do we look at the things that had happened back at the beginning in the 60s and 70s as though we're trying to recreate that stuff I believe we continue those things because they were handed to us but the people that would say well you can't you can't redo what's already been done I want to say are you reading the same 2,000 year old scriptures I am or older than that if we go to the Old Testament we're reading the same scriptures they're either authoritative And we remember what it was that we have learned and then continue. And this is what I was taught. I was not always a born-again believer. I grew up in a faith tradition that told me that all truth comes through the church. And it is not for me to question that. Because those were the guys that knew better. I was just somebody who had to know my place and sit down and shut up. Jesus, to me, was just a statue. That's what he represented to me. That's all I knew of him. And then coming to a place that honored the word of God, said, oh, no, 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 no. That is, a, that is a physical representation. He probably didn't look anything like that. But he's deeply personal. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father. And he died for me because he wants me to know him personally because he is indeed the personal living God. So as we see these things, again, verse 20, this great truth. They will put down the marker. And then people will believe because of them. Paul was careful to do this with Timothy in particular. Timothy, you can find it all throughout Paul's writings to Timothy. You've, you've seen what I've taught. You've watched what I've done. You've seen my demonstration. You know everything that there is to know about my ministry. Especially in 2 Timothy. I'm about out of here. You continue on. You have everything necessary to continue. And so it was to, again, definitely continue. I heard... Pastor Chuck asked the question once, can anything last more than a generation? We are, again, reading from a from a text that is a couple thousand years old. Can it continue on indefinitely if the person that hears it passes it along without diluting it to the next generation and then so on and so on and so on? Because God's word is perfect and true and pure and all of those things. Now, a couple of other ones so that we can, again, kind of set the baseline, if you will. What then should be the task of the church based upon this let's go to 1 Timothy 3 and see i knew i'd be able to get away with doing this because people like yourselves are just fine with going around the scripture you know if i say where it is you you know how to get there you guys have your bibles i love that the sound of pages turning it's music to my ears 1 Timothy. In verse 15, he says an interesting little thing. And he says, but Timothy, if I'm delayed, I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Earlier in the the chapter, he started to give the qualifications for deacons and elders. And just very simply put, it is they are supposed to be in place because they are of impeccable character. There's nothing worse than having somebody in ministry that when everybody looks at him, they say, what in the world were they thinking putting that guy there? Why do they use that guy? He just, he's a, a human tornado. And he, there's just wreckage as he sweeps through town. Impeccable character. People that are not questionable, of questionable character. And so he says all of that. And then he turns his direction towards this, Timothy. I write these things. I want to come to you personally, but if I can't, I write to you so that you would know how to conduct yourself. Let's do a real quick rewind of this. He's doing this. This is Ephesus here. Timothy's left in Ephesus. Remember all of what's taken place there. Paul went to Ephesus and spent three years, set up a church, and you figure after three years, things are probably in pretty good shape, right? Well, when he left, yes. But he has to write back to the Ephesians, and he has some correction in that. By the time that chapter 20 rolls around in the book of Acts, he meets with the elders at Ephesus at a place called Miletus on his way to Jerusalem. And he says of a caution to them in chapter 20, just know that as soon as I leave town, my paraphrase, savage wolves are going to come in, and they will not spare the flock. Now, the worst part is not only are they going to be from the outside, they are going to come from the inside as well. So you overseers have it together. You take care of the flock of God. And now, after the time from when Paul left Miletus, went through his imprisonment at Caesarea, he's already been to Rome, and now he's back here. He's left Timothy at uh, at Ephesus as he goes on to Macedonia. He ends up giving Timothy this. And basically what we're looking at here is Things are not as they should be in Ephesus, so you go there and get it cleaned up. Now, if that, on one hand, that, that's kind of comforting to know that even people with all that great beginning can get all goofed up. Does anybody find comfort in that? And at the same time, you want to say, how did you guys get so goofed up so fast? Take your eyes off of the word of God and put philosophy in it, and that's where it begins to fall apart. And it doesn't take long. So we see here where he says, this is how you would know to conduct yourself in the house of God, which, by the way, it is the church of the living God. Now, the way that that's phrased seems to put the emphasis on the church. The church is secondary there. It is the the living God who has a church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. So if you're in the church, God's called you out of this world. We just read it, right? You're not of this world. You're the ones that are called out, but called out for what? To go hunker down in a mountain somewhere or to be engaged in this world. Now, he says also in John 17, he says, now, I'm not asking God that you remove them from the world, but that you would keep them unspotted from the world. Engage it with the gospel, but don't don't marry into it. So here, Paul says, I tell you all this stuff so that you can put it in order. And now there's a reason why he says that. So let's read on a little bit more because he says this church, this church of the living God, it is to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. A pillar, we've got them here. These are supports. These are things that hold things up. Now, again, if these pillars that are holding up this roof and this structure and all that, if they weren't anchored to the floor, somebody could just, well, they're big enough probably and they have enough weight on them. You couldn't do it. Just figure a scaled down version of this. You could kick the support right out from under it because there's nothing that anchors it there. The church is supposed to support the truth. It is to carry it and uphold it. That is the job of the church. We have been given custody of the word of God. It is a stewardship that we are to know such things. And that is the work of the church to take the word into a world that, yeah, it's hostile towards what we believe. Have you noticed? And if the world is speaking well of the church, my guess is that the church is not real careful about the word of God. Something to consider. So he says, Here's how you're to conduct yourself in the house of God, which, by the way, it is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Now, notice again, it's not one of many truths. It's not a half truth. It's not a partial truth. It's not one among many truths. It is the above all other truths. There are things about the scripture that make it unique. And we'll get into some of those things in a little bit. Now, I've got to be careful of my time, too. Uh, John 14.6 is a great example of this. These, the way that the Bible speaks in absolutes, as I had mentioned a little bit earlier. Let me give you just one of them. When people say that the Bible doesn't speak in absolutes. So when I had mentioned that, if you were saying, well, do you have an example of that? Well, if you're familiar with John, the, uh, the I am statements are great examples of those. But probably the one that has the, the, the most to it that's so easy to nail down about absolute and even if you will exclusive statements John 14:6 is your verse Now if you're there and reading it you already know it right Read it with me Look at John 14:6 what does it say I am the way the truth and the life and what no one comes to whom but how through me Does that sound exclusive to you Does it seem like there's any other possible way That is what we would call an exclusive, absolute statement. Now, if we were to ask Jesus, are you absolutely sure about that? Yes, I am. He wouldn't have any other option but to say it is an absolute statement, and it is one that we can say it is ironclad. So we are able to take that as an absolute statement, and really, if we wanted to, we could add emphasis to it and say, in fact, it is so exclusive of everything else that there is no other way but here's the thing heaven is the most exclusive place that you could ever imagine and yet it's open to all who ask doesn't that doesn't that just blow your mind it would seem as though i mean we know about you know clubs and things like that places that you have to know the right people and the right handshakes you have to have the right connections to get into this place well in this case in this case you have to know jesus exactly He's the way, the truth, and the life. But once that's taken care of, enter in. But no one else is going to get in by any other way. Read John chapter 10. You can't get past the one who is the gate that brings in and brings out the sheep. There's no other way. Any other attempt is seen as just fraud. So here, just one of the many examples where you can say Jesus himself, he speaks in absolutes. And he is known as the Word of God, the Logos. He's the intent of everything that God would ever want to communicate to mankind. And he makes exclusive statements like this. So baseline things. The Word speaks in absolute terms. One of the other places that, uh, that we could, you don't need to look at it. We're doing this back home at church. I took uh, on Sunday mornings to go through the book of Genesis, the first 12 chapters. And then it gets gets into historical things after that. But in that you have the fall of man, the creation, the way that God said that it took place. You have God as being a just and a righteous judge. You have the God who is the, the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. And yet much of the church looks at the book of Genesis and says you can't take it as literal. It's all allegorical. It's poetic. It's symbolic. It's this, that, and the other thing. Again, I want to say, please show me the verse where I can go ahead and take that license with Scripture. Because once you do that, you start to do violence to the text. They do the same thing with Revelation. And so in Revelation, they would say, well, we don't really believe in all that judgy stuff. Our future is hopeful. Really? On this earth? The way that things are right now? The one that I look forward to is one wherein righteousness rules. I'm looking forward to that one because I don't... I don't like all the unrighteousness, the stuff that's being foisted upon us. But again, the scripture spoke about that, said it would be that way. If anything, that to the believer brings hopefulness because we say Jesus is going to be here soon. In the meantime, we're not to be eor. Are we okay with that? We're supposed to say, God has given me life and breath and hopefulness. And so my message is indeed one of hopefulness, but it is also one of severity and carefulness. And being sure that we are paying attention to the word of God. I want to to note in this, if you look at, especially like the one that's attacked the most in Genesis, is the creation account. Oh, you really believe that God created everything just like that? Six days, literal days. Really, you think that? It's like, well, I don't know what took him so long. If he wanted to, it would be like that. And it's all done. Well, he did that so that we would understand it was a cycle of days. I am one who believes in a a young earth creation. I know that there are some who disagree with that, but isn't it interesting when you look at such things like that, especially in the book of Genesis, the way that it's written, God's not looking to win an argument here. He just basically said, this is how I did it. And any of you who think that you're smart enough to tell me I did something different, you weren't there. Here's what I did. So he speaks about it that way. Now, again, in Revelation, this is where things end, and this is how I'm going to do it. Now, the, the critics want to say, well, we don't really believe that that's going to happen. Okay, well, that changes everything. You're smarter than God. He just basically said, this is how it ends. This is how it began, and this is how it ends. And here's the subtlety of that, because both doing both of those things is an attack on the Word of God. Is that not what happened in the beginning with Eve? Hath God said? Is that not how that started? Now, if you can rip out Genesis is not... Trustworthy and rip out revelation is not trustworthy. Those are the pillars, folks. All the other 64 books in between collapse. We need to know where we've come from in order to know where we are going. And thank God, He's given us all of the details. It is for us to know those things. And He saw fit to give us His word. And here is one of the, the uh, other wonderful passages Hebrews chapter 1. One of my favorites. As I'm looking around here, I'm, uh, I'm looking at some of the people from our church that are here. And I told you at the beginning that uh, I'm not going to say anything that's you know profound. I'm going to go over stuff that you already know. You've heard these verses. And I feel sorry for our people that are here from the church. Like, yeah, I know. You say this stuff all the time. <laughs> We're here to hear Jack in the worship. So just wrap it up. I do a disservice to our people. That's not true. You're, they came all the way up from Cyprus. Look at Hebrews chapter one, verse one. God who at various times and in various ways, spoke in times past to the fathers, by the prophets. God had a way of communicating when He wanted to, right? told us the things that were happening. He's given us all of these kind of details. This is how he did it before. There was at least one layer of mediation at all times when God was communicating, whether it was the prophets, whether it was even David the king, whether it was Moses, whoever he was using at the time, there was at least one layer of mediation. Now we see in verse 2, it says, But has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, that that through whom also, rather, he made the worlds. So we understand him as being the creation, who is the brightness of his glory, The express image of his person, and then upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What an amazing statement that is. And really what it what it ultimately tells us and helps us to realize that when God had communicated the way that He did, at least with one layer of mediation, if we want to try to put it in the easiest way for us to grasp, God had always used someone else. This time he came here in person let me just tell you because i am that i am when he makes those i am statements that i mentioned earlier in john he's doing that so that we would understand the i am kind of statements puts it back to burning bush kind of stuff remember moses well so when i go who should i tell them sent me well tell them that i am sent you if you don't think that that's the case look at when he i think he first uses the term in chapter 8 of john and look at the reaction they wanted to kill him for saying before abraham was I am. They knew what he meant. It's the critics and the people that know more about the Bible that somehow think that Jesus was, you know, they start to question his deity. Well, I got to wrap up here. So if if indeed God's word is, as he's put forward to us, trustworthy, accurate, complete, turn with me to the book of John. And I want to mention something before we get there. When we get to John chapter 20, we have people that will tell us that we can have things inform our understanding outside of the word. I'm going to give you a couple of quick examples. How many of you are familiar with a person? Her name is Phyllis Tickle. You ever heard that name? There's really a person named Phyllis Tickle. Yes. Brian McLaren. You heard those names? Here's why I even bring them up, because of what they're teaching. Now, if, if we didn't even know who they were, there would always be somebody else to go ahead and take their, their place. Phyllis Tickle is a lay minister in the Episcopal, uh, the Episcopal Church. She wrote a book called The Great Emergence. And basically what she says, about every 500 years or so, there's a big change that takes place in the church. And so she points back to the Reformation and said, there's a new one that's coming, And so this one will be a way of throwing off Sola Scriptura. Anybody know what Sola Scriptura is? The scripture only. Latin. So as the authority to the church, she said, we're at that time of a new emergence. A new truth is going to emerge. We're going to leave that idea of the dogmatism of the, the Bible that has been infesting the church for 500 years by her reckoning. She says, no wonder we've got 30,000, her number, 30,000 different denominations. Now, if you find out what her uh, her fix to this problem is, that we should deal more on the experiential side of things. That we can, we can add third-party writings, whether they're secular or Christian. We can look at nature. We can enter into a meditative kind of practice that will bring us into a different understanding of God. And all those things will inform it. And so we won't be under all these different denominations. And I'm thinking to myself, there are about 2 billion people that call themselves Christians. And if we can all make it up as we go, if you thought 30,000 was a lot of confusion, wait till everybody has their own truth. And if this is your new emergence, I don't want any part of it. It sounds crazy to me. Brian McLaren is the one who says that the Bible is an open-ended book. That we can even change the ending of that book based on the things that we do. Now, I'll get into why doctrinally that is so incredibly dangerous in the second session. But as we're here at John chapter 20, look at how John ends that chapter. Uh, In verse 30, it says... In verse 30, he says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in these books, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What that tells us, everything that is necessary. And John's just writing this gospel. He has no idea what Paul will end up doing down the road to give us more in the way of theology and especially doctrine. This is just what John is telling I, I should say, boy, I need to be more careful. What am I thinking? John's writing at the end, so he does know the things that are there. But he's, he's speaking specifically to this book that he's put here. These things we've, we've chronicled, or I've chronicled to you, and it's interesting that John... Writes the things that he does the way that he does. John's gospel is different. He shares things that are not found, many of them not found in the other gospels. My personal belief is that he's at the end of these things. He's writing the last of the things written. And since other gospels had written and so many things were there, he's putting in detail that they hadn't seen before. Fascinating stuff. But he says that you can know, based upon what you see here, you can know these major things, 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ okay that he meets that qualification no one else can take that title he's not one among many and oftentimes we hear that that term christ thrown around by people that don't even believe in the historical person of jesus as we know him let alone the miraculous man of god that lived among us actually the god made flesh the holy eternal god made flesh they wouldn't look at him that way. And, and again, this is one of those little quirky things that my pastor used to say, and, and it's never left me. He said, I, you would very seldom hear Jack refer to Jesus as just simply Christ. He felt that that did a bit of a disservice. He wanted to identify him by name, not just Christ, but which one are we talking about? Because the New Agers believe in Christ, right? There's a Christ consciousness. There's Christ likeness. There's Christ this, that, and the other thing. How about Jesus how about the one that died on the cross for the sin of mankind? That's a whole different one altogether. So it's defining the terms. And I know it sounds kind of, you know, semantics. Anyway, believe that Jesus is the Christ, but he's also, he's the son of God. And that here's the, the things because he meets that qualification, that by believing you may have life. And that's not just here. That's Eternal though jesus did promise he goes i've come to give them life and what that more abundantly and it has nothing to do with material things that's found in john chapter 10 read the whole chapter it has nothing to do with material things it is everything to do it has everything to do with relationship now last couple that i want to share with you turn with me to john chapter 16 as we wrap this up john 16 Because now saying all of what I've just said, great. What does it mean to us? The word of God. Now that we have it in our hands and all the rest of it, what now? If we can set the baseline based upon those things, what is the therefore takeaway from this? It's found in in John chapter 16, because again, some people may look at it and say, but you know, I I don't have the ability to maybe work through it like some of uh, other people that I know. Or, you know, we, we may figure that we don't see the same things that other people see in Scripture. Or whatever the case may be, they think that there are, are different classifications of people. Well, God gives understanding, of course. But I want us to all realize that none of us would have a Bible put in our hands if we, if we knew the basics of things. We could all have God speak to us accurately, completely through his word. How do I know that? John sixteen twelve says this. I still have many things to say to you. But you cannot bear them. So he's speaking to the disciples. And again, considering where this is, these are the last hours of his life, right? However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you of the things to come. He will glorify me for he will take that which is mine and declare it to you. All things that my Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Now that's simply put, the Spirit is given to us that the things that Jesus taught, what has been given to us, is there for us to take and to understand. There is not a believer that cannot take the word of God assisted by the Holy Spirit and and not have the Scripture known to them. This is why we pray before we we study or should we spend time in prayer saying, God, I want to know what your word has to say. So will you lead me by your Holy Spirit in understanding of your word? Now, if I want to go ahead and and the last thing I'll I'll point to with that, because some people would say, but the Bible gave us teachers. Yes, that's true. Ephesians chapter 4 goes through that. And Ephesians is where it says that he gave apostles and teachers. And it's part of the gifts. It's uh, found in verse 11 and 12. And you can see it there. And so, yeah, the Bible gives us, the Bible talks about one of the gifts as being teachers. And that's great. We assemble. Paul was a teacher. Timothy was one that was left in that same place. So, yeah, there are those that, that teach. But let's make sure that we remember this. We can go ahead and listen to people who are teachers, but remember what Paul said about the people at Berea? Remember what he said about those guys? They were more fair-minded. They were more noble than those at Thessalonica, the guys that ran them out of town under threat of death, because they took everything that they heard from me, and then they did what? They search the scriptures themselves to see that those things are so. I know that I can speak for, for Pastor Xavier. I see Pastor Roger over here. Of course, Pastor Jack, myself. We expect you to take everything that you hear. Everything. And you verify it for yourself. You have the word of God in your hands and you have the Holy Spirit who leads you in all truth. None of us will ever stand before God at some point and say, Well, that's what the pastor taught, so I just believed it. We shouldn't, because if we do, God's going to say, that is not an excuse. I didn't tell you to take everything that you heard from that person. I heard you, I told you to check those things for yourself. Be led by the word of God and by the Holy Spirit, because let's face it, if you were dropped on a desert island, island all by yourself and all you had was a Bible, you are totally equipped, totally equipped. Isn't that good news? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the comfort that comes from knowing that you have communicated to us not only in your word, but through the person of Jesus who delivered what we saw in him, in his life, the things that he taught and then picked up by other men. You have gone to great lengths, as we may, may understand them, to make yourself known to us. God, we pray that you would help us to be students of your word, that we would be people not tossed to and fro. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your love pray that you would glorify yourself through the rest of this time that we have together talking about and looking at prayer and then those things that we believe. We thank you for your faithfulness. We glorify you. We worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.